0: Hi, everybody! It's so good to see you, and uh, I always love coming to Kyle. Some of you who are new are going. Who is this guy? <laughs> I, I, I like Brent. Um, <laughs> I am. Uh, I, I, I my, me, and my family came down with Brent, of course. Uh, they, uh, they came with us, and starting one chapel. Uh, over six years ago now. And uh, Kyle being one of our family of neighborhood churches has been such a joy. I am so excited about what God is doing here, what's happening in you, and what's going to happen through you. And I want to remind you that if... Um, if you listen to that talk that Eric just gave and, you know, you think that's really a cool idea, you know, somebody going to a different culture and doing missionary work. I mean, it is, it is incredible. They are, they, they are having incredible experiences. And I think everybody needs to go on a short-term missions trip for sure that's cross-cultural. But listen, you and I are already on mission right here in Austin. You and I already have a mission of sharing the love of Jesus with people who are in need. And so I just want to encourage you we're all working on this together. And so um we're going to we're going to study the scriptures this morning. If you want to Turn in your Bibles to Mark 10. We're going to spend time in two passages, Mark 10 and John 11. And so you can put your finger in uh, John 11 and, and we'll read Mark 10 first. But let me pray, all right? Father, we thank you so much for your grace and mercy. Thank you for your truth. Thank you that uh, you are here in this place and that we are able to uh, hear your voice, to know your touch to experience your life. And so, Lord, would you change our minds today as we open the scriptures? Would you reveal who Jesus is and what you want for our lives? We thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen. Starting a brand new series today called Impossible God. Impossible God. Those two words together are kind of unique. Uh, They're interesting together because I think... The God of the Bible that we serve seems like an impossible character to so many. But even to us who might call themselves believers or Christians, we uh, we we sometimes have trouble imagining. Or understanding or embracing this God who seems impossible. In other words, it's beyond our own way of thinking. It is, it, the Bible says that his ways are higher than our ways. The Bible describes him as doing unimaginable things. And so sometimes it's hard for us to believe that this God that we serve is who he says he is. And during this Easter season, as we ramp up towards the resurrection next week, as we look forward to uh, water baptisms, which I think is the, the most profound impossible change that there is in the life of a person where they turn their hearts over to God, where they surrender to him. As we go through this, we're going to talk about what it looks like to imagine, to see, to understand, to, to let God be revealed to us. And so one of, the, one of the, my favorite movies of all times, I think, says it perfectly. I don't know if you know who Vicini is of The Princess Bride, the classic. The cl- most classic movie of all time. He, sa- he says it so profoundly, and I think it describes how we simply think God is inconceivable. Truly, you have a dizzying intellect. That would be inconceivable. As I told you, it would be absolutely, totally, and in all other ways, inconceivable. 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 (laughs) You keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. (sighs) I do not think it means what you think it means. (laughs) Inconceivable, here's some uh, some words that... I I was looking up synonyms. Unthinkable, unimaginable, unbelievable, incredible, implausible, ludicrous, mind-blowing... Mind-boggling. These are words to describe God, but here's what I want you to see: that Jesus Himself came to show us who God is. Jesus Himself came to reveal the Father. Colossians one five says, or one fifteen says, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Hebrews one three says, the Son is the radiance of God's glory. And the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And so we look to Jesus first to see what he says about this impossible God. Mark 10, verse 17. You can read it with me in in the Bible. It says, and as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. That's a pretty bold statement. Right? Verse 21, and Jesus looking at him, I love this. He says, looking at him, loved him. He loved him as is to say, oh, poor guy. Bless your heart. (laughs) He says, and and he said to him, teacher, I've done all these for my youth. Jesus looking at him and loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Remember that the question on the table, everyone, is how do you inherit eternal life? Jesus suggests that you can't take it with you for eternal life. That eternal life, if you're going to open your hands and receive eternal life, you've got to let go of everything. It reminds me of the, the, the old rich guy who died. And somebody said, how much did he leave? And they said, he left it all. Because you ta- you can't take it. Jesus is suggesting something here that, that you, when you receive eternal life, when you experience eternal life, there's no room for anything extra. There's no baggage you can carry with you. There's no stuff that you have, can be attached to other than Jesus himself. So he says these words, how difficult will it will be for the wealth to enter the kingdom of God? And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier to for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. This seems like crazy talk. As I was reading some different Bible scholars and their opinions on this, I mean, there's all kinds of thoughts about maybe it represents a camel kneeling through something that was called the eye of a needle in a gate, and I, I've heard that preached many times, but I think Jesus, what Jesus was saying here was, he was, like, this is literal, like, it's really hard, I think it's classic, like, Jewish overstatement, like, sure, come to Jesus as soon as you get the whole ocean in a bottle, right? It's like, it's like this kind of thought process, and he's saying it's impossible. And he says it's really hard, and they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? They're saying, well, Jesus, then what? I mean, in our culture, it's important to ha- not be the The poorest person so you can share with those in need It's important. I mean, these disciples are kind of confused. Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. The change of a human heart, the letting go of everything in our lives, it is possible with God. Everything that seems impossible. Now, I want you to see that the issue Jesus is addressing here is not how really had nothing to do with how the young man obeyed the Ten Commandments. Sometimes in our Christianity, sometimes we gravitate to this idea that Jesus is all concerned about how well you obeyed the Ten Commandments. That's not what faith in him is about. There's something more. But this, this man had something in his heart. Jesus was interested in what was going on inside the man's heart. What was going on inside his heart? And what this series of questions did for the man was it exposed what this man was really attached to. What was really happening. You know what? That's exactly how Jesus will come to all of us. Because no matter what happens, Jesus will always find his way to the one thing that you and I are unwilling to part with. If it's a relationship, if it's a, if it's a family, if it's a career, if it's a job, if it's a possession, it, Jesus will find his way to say, "I, son, I want that. Give me, would you just give it to me? I'm, I promise you'll be better off. Eternal life is way better. But this seems impossible to us. How can me giving to poor people cause this eternal life to well up within me? It doesn't seem possible, does it? Like, what does that look like? How does it work? For so many of us, the rich young ruler in this story is dealing with a deceptive dichotomy, a contrast, if you will. You see, we believe that God provides, and yet How we live our lives reveals that if we don't take care of ourselves, if we don't make things happen for ourselves, then nothing significant will happen in our lives. We fail to help the poor because we think we need it. We say that we believe that God loves us unconditionally, but yet how we live our lives reveals that we still think we have to earn God's love. And so sometimes that's why we help the poor. That motive will not do. Trying to help the poor so that you can be a good Christian. There's something deeper in that motivation that you have to live out in the kingdom of God. That that motivation comes from the eternal life that lives within you. And, and this, it's interesting how the same action can produce the kingdom of God. Or it can produce um, religious legalism inside your own heart. We say that we believe nothing is impossible with God, but yet how we live our lives reveals that we also believe that there are certain things that are impossible for him. And so we end up holding on to these two things, but Jesus asks us to give them up in order to follow him. Why does he do this? Because we're talking about the earthly and human paradigms that we embrace here on this planet versus the kingdom of God paradigms that it come, have come into the world through Jesus Christ himself. And listen, this story we're about to read, as we go into the Easter season, as we look at the Passion Week of Christ, which is this week, as we come to Good Friday, as, as we understand how Jesus went to the cross, we begin to see a different paradigm, a different way of thinking about life, a different way of embracing our life here Letting things go and embracing what God has done and what he wants to do. And this story here is one of the first moments where that really sent Jesus to the cross as it was talked about and celebrated. Look at John 11, verse 1. John 11, verse 1. We're going to read through this entire passage and we're going to tell the story. So follow along with me. John 11. It's in the New Testament just Past Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and it's right there. John 11, verse 1, it says, Now a man named Lazarus was sick, and he was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. And when he had heard this, Jesus said, The sickness, this sickness will not end. In death, know it. Will, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Jesus already had an inkling of what was coming. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Yet when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was for two more days, and then he said to his disciples, "Let us go back to Judea." Now, isn't this interesting? That even as dire as the situation seemed, Jesus waits two more days. I want you to notice all the relational language in this passage right here, how much he loved these people, how much he embraced them, how his heart was connected to them. And I think we see here a foreshadowing in the story of Lazarus, not only of, of God's uh, coming into our world, but we see Jesus experiencing a miracle and demonstrating a miracle that was a foreshadowing of what was coming for him. Verse eight says, But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago the Jews there tried to stone you, and yet you are going back? Jesus answered and are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by this world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. What is Jesus rambling on about here? He waits to go, then finally he decides to go, and then he starts talking to the disciples. You know, he's, they're, they're concerned because... He was he was in this location just earlier and they were about to kill him. They were ready to stone him, the Jewish people were, the Jewish leaders were, the religious of their community. And so they're afraid of it. But Jesus starts talking about walking in the light instead of in the dark. About seeing the light instead of suffering in the dark. It's an interesting Thing I I was thinking about this as I was preparing, and my son Taylor, he's he's 20 years old, and he had a bunch of friends over at his house, and they were playing a game. And this game was called Murder in the Dark. (laughs) It's a wholesome family game. Uh, like what? What is this game? And I guess what they do is you turn off all the lights in the whole house, right? So everything's pitch black, and then there's one person who is the murderer. Hallelujah! And so then there's a there's this process where they the person who is the murderer catches people in the dark, and and then they're uh, dead. And so 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 they're running around in the dark, and Taylor emerges from the game. He's playing this game at our house. We get home later that, that night, and he emerges from the game with a ginormous hematoma, huge, like, huge, bloody face on his forehead. Do you see it there? Check that out. <laughs> huge, nasty, nasty cut. It was, sti- it was sticking out of his head. I'm like, what are you doing? We're playing a game. It's awesome. You turn out all the lights and you run. (laughs) This doesn't make any sense to me. (laughs) I think Jesus is describing how humans do the same thing. These teenagers, they think it's fun, but you can get hurt. Humans think it's fun, but you can get hurt. Jesus is saying he was challenging his disciples to walk in the light of trusting God in the middle of the suffering, in the middle of the struggle, to have faith and have courage in God, instead of living in the darkness of fear, of torment, of frustration, of apprehension and regret. This is what they were going to need because Jesus was about to go to the cross. They would be tested like never before at the crucifixion. They would would question their own convictions and heart as Jesus began his journey, the final journey, the final part of his journey to go to his father. Verse 11 says, after he had said this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am the going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. <laughs> we think that they're just so dumb. You know, but, but we, we have this, we have something called chronological snobbery, right? Like we think, the, the deal is, the problem is, they really, they really were wrestling with what was impossible. We think it was silly, but we sit here, stand here today and, and give at least mental assent to the resurrection. We know the end of the story, in other words. They were still walking through this process of impossibility, and they said, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. They couldn't understand. They weren't functioning. They weren't listening on the paradigm of Jesus. Verse 13, Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep, so then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead, you guys, and for your sake, I'm, go- I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. And so as was the norm, the disciples are confused. They're not functioning on the same parad- paradigm. But look what Thomas says in verse 16. He says, then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. <laughs> you notice Thomas is a, kind of a famous disciple. He was known kind of as a skeptic. They call him Doubting Thomas. I want to suggest to you that it's not because he didn't believe it's because he was a realist. He believed all right. He wanted it to be authentic. He wanted it to be real. He was committed to the cause. If this thing that Jesus is, is going through, if, we're, if we are bringing the kingdom of God into the world, then I'm willing to die with Jesus. I'm willing to go and be stoned. I'm willing to be killed. See, inter- but interestingly enough, Thomas was willing to fight and die. I don't think he understood Jesus was interested in laying his life down and dying. And I think you and I wrestle with the similar concept. I'm willing to fight for what I believe and, and die that way. I'm not sure I'm really clued into like giving everything up. I'm not sure I understand what that means. What does that look like? Yielding to Jesus and his purpose and his plan, even in the midst of the struggle, even in the midst of what, it it doesn't look right. Thomas didn't understand the paradigm. Look at verse 17, it says, on his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now, Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem. Even urban dwellers like you and I could have walked two miles. Some of you would have been out of breath, but it would have, you could have made it. Very simple, very simple. And many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. And When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to him to meet him. But Mary stayed at home. Lord Martha said to Jesus, If you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Martha was frustrated. She was irritated that Jesus had not come earlier. She said, If only you'd been here. I wonder how many of you have an if only with God. If only he would have done what I thought should have been done. If only he could have come earlier. If only he wouldn't have been late. I, I think God has this thing where we feel like he's perpetually late. But he has his plan and his purpose. And it unfolds in a beautiful, incredible miracle. That's his purpose. That's his desire for you. That's his calling in your life. And I think here we see a disappointed and heartbroken Mary. She's seen people be healed by Jesus. But, but, but now he's shown up too late. Verse 22 says, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know. <laughs> I know he will rise again at the resurrection of the last day. Now what Jesus does here is so profound because all listen, Jewish people had firmly in their hearts and minds Isaiah 65 and 66. There was the idea of the, of the new heaven and new earth. There was a resurrection of the last day. At the end of all things, Martha held that belief. She held it firmly. She says, I know it. I know this is where we'll get new bodies, where, where grief and ugliness and tyranny will be no more. But Jesus does this thing that's so profound instead of looking to the past instead of dreaming about what might have been instead of speaking about what now can't be Jesus invites Mary to look to the future or sorry Martha to look to the future and she and as she looks to the future Jesus does the oddest thing look at verse 25 Jesus said to her I am the resurrection and the life the one who believes in me will live even though they die And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? (laughs) You should write that in your notes. Do you believe this? No, go ahead, really, write it down right now. Do you believe this? The question is, do you believe that life can come into you even though your physical body may die? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who has come into the world. That's kind of code for, yes, I believe I know who you are. As for this other stuff you're talking about, I'm not sure. See, Jesus interjects a whole new paradigm for Martha. Look at this. Resurrection isn't a doctrine. It is not a few, just a future event. Resurrection is a person. Resurrection is a person, and there he was standing in front of Martha, asking her to take this huge leap of faith. See, what was going on here was that the future had burst into the present. That's what was happening to Martha. That's what was happening to Mary. The future had come, and it had come into the present with resurrection life. The new creation with with the, the resurrection. The end of time into the middle of time. Verse 28, follow it with me. And after... She had said this. She went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. And when Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord... Here it is again. If you'd only been here. If you'd been here, my brother would have died. See, Mary and her friends and Martha, they're expressing frustration. It could have been different. There could have been a different way. You might not have had, we might not have had to endure such agony. You could have saved us from that. You could have healed Lazarus. Verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved. In spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord. They replied. Jesus wept. I want to suggest to you that these are real tears. We kind of see this passage and we kind of split it up into verses. They talked to him, and then this this happened, and then Jesus cried. I want to suggest to you that it was more like real life that Jesus showed up and saw everyone weeping and that his friend Lazarus is dead and the grief that's going on in the community that he comes and he sees it and he experiences and he's willing to enter it with them. That it is hurtful to watch this grief. That it is, it is I would suggest to you, part of his own experience What we believe about Jesus is 100% human, 100% divine. His dichotomy, he never succumbed to it, to the strain, the pulling apart. He entered into both fully. That he entered into this weeping, not because he was so pitying them, but because there was grief and he felt the grief with them. He entered the, the sorrow, the pain, the disappointment of death. See, one chapel family, Jesus enters the world to join you and me in our suffering. Verse 38 says, Jesus once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been there four days. Now once more we see Martha held by the facts of the situation. She's like, Jesus, I've seen you heal. I've seen you heal some people, but it was in a reasonable amount of time. Like, it was right after they died or something. Like, this is four days. One translation says, by this time he stinketh. <laughs> I use that on my sons every once in a while. By this time you stinketh. Go get a shower. You have to see, Martha is firmly held by the facts. Lazarus has been dead for four days and, some, and he, she's saying the stench of death is on him. Last year we had an animal die in our backyard which doesn't happen very often in the Belterra neighborhood, <laughs> right? It's like a master plan community. It's a little house. We have a little backyard. We don't have acres, but, but this dead animal is in our backyard. And so one of the kids finds it. We try to wrap it up. We're not sure what to do with it. It's, it's dead. It's, it's died somehow. And we wrap it up in two different plastic bags because the smell is so bad, <laughs> We put it in the, tr- we don't know what to do with it. We're like, oh, should we have it removed? Should we call somebody? We, we try to put it on in our, in our trash can, you know, it's small enough. And it, but the trash can is smelling and the next day we miss the trash man. I was so mad. What am I going to do? I get, it's smelling up the whole neighborhood. And so, I, so I'm thinking, my brother-in-law, I, he, his house is right near mine. He's like three minutes away. I'm going to take the, take the animal and I'm going to put it in his trash can because his trash is tomorrow. And so, and so he says, sure, come and bring it over. So I take it. I put it in the trunk of my car. I know, who knew? I put it in the trunk of my car and, the, and, and, the, and, and I mean, it's there for like 20 seconds and inside the car, it's in the trunk, in the, inside the car. I'm like, oh my gosh, it smells so bad. We were in the car less than three minutes. The car didn't stop smelling for five months. <gasps> I was like, what is this? What what really freaked me out was whatever those molecules of death were were now inside my nostrils and in my body. I know, gross. Listen, the stench of death is vile. It is it is it is vicious, it is ferocious. We don't really believe it, although we seem to be fighting it all the way in our humanity. But sin is the thing that causes death to take over. And it wants to attach itself. And it seems impossible for death to be conquered. Every one of you are faced with this challenge of whether or not you will enter into a belief That death can be conquered, this thing that attaches itself to you so dramatically, so viciously, can God really deal with it? Jesus says, with God, all things are possible. Verse 40, then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me, and I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing there, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and cloth on his face, and Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Sorry, I'm so in trouble right now. You better make it worth it by remembering the point. Listen. Listen. God did something here so powerful. He raises Lazarus from the dead. We've got we don't have time. i got to give you three points. Here it is. Ready, number one. Jesus joins us in our suffering moments. These are inconceivable paradigms. We don't believe that he's here. We don't see what's going on. We look for, often we're looking to God for a way out instead of looking for him to come join us. Would you believe that he's joining you where, right where you are? And you don't see it. You want him to open doors. You want him to provide. But what happens when it seems like God's not showing up? What happens when it seems like God is not showing up? You and I have to believe. Doubt and unbelief comes in. We're holding these two dichotomies together. We have to believe the kingdom of God is coming, that Jesus joins us, that he's here in his humanity. Hebrews 4 talks all about this. This is your homework for this week. Go home and read it. Hebrews 4, right there. We got to believe that God is able He can do the impossible, and yet I'm not seeing it manifested in my life, but I'm going to hang on to him instead of hang on to what I know. I'm going to hang on to him instead of what I know. This is what the Passion Week is all about. Jesus is going to the cross. Friday, Good Friday, is the day that he goes, a dark day in, in the lives of every disciple. God had a purpose and a plan that was not revealed to them yet. But it was coming and Lazarus was a signal. It was a little sign. And I furthermore believe it was a little sign to Jesus himself about what God was getting ready to do. Number two, Jesus emphasizes our future, not our past. He doesn't want you to look back. He wants you to look forward. That's why That's why in your car you have a huge windshield in the front a little tiny mirror. Why is that? Because where you're going is so much better than what you just left so much more important than what you just left you got to see it you got to watch where you're going jesus took martha's attention to the past if only you'd been here if only you'd done this so many of you have prayed that prayer if only god you would have done it like i thought you should have done it can you trust will you trust will you believe that he's the god of the impossible oh god this is the, this is impossible this there's no way this can be fixed I want us to embrace this idea during this season of the resurrection of Christ, to look forward instead of the past. There's Psalm 103, read it while you're at home, 2 Corinthians 4, 16, and then number three, Jesus makes the impossible possible. Resurrection is part of your future, but Jesus has come into the middle of your life and declared, I'm the resurrection. I'm the one who makes all things possible possible. And you will, you'll see that in those two verses right there. You can see it. Look, the last thing I want to tell you is, I want you to see, Lazarus wasn't resurrected. He was resuscitated. Because he died a few years later. We're talking about something more. Lazarus was a signpost. It was a picture of what's to come. That Jesus himself is the resurrection. And he's bringing him himself into our world and into our experience and into our struggle. And this Passion Week, I wonder if you would think about him joining you. I wonder if you will think about this week, as we ramp up to Easter, how profound it is that Jesus was willing to lay his life down. And that he would conquer death by the work of the Spirit in his life. He had to trust his Father, and he had to obey, and he had to allow for the Spirit then to raise him. It's the same process for you and me. Close your eyes and bow your heads, and I want you to, we're going to come to participate in Holy Communion here as we close. And the ushers are moving to get ready to pass. And as they do, I want you to realize that God is waiting for you to relinquish, to release everything that you're holding on to. And as we come to this moment, I want you to just close your eyes, just bow your head, and I want you to let him point out that one thing that he wants. That one thing that he'd like to take from you. I promise you, he's more able to carry it than you are. He loves you. He has a purpose for you. And he has a plan. And I want you to trust him. We come to this table, this holy table, celebrating the the body and blood of Christ, the bread representing the the body of Jesus, and and the cup, the blood represented by this cup, This juice that we drink, there's something that as we come to it, it is provision for you. It is provision. Put your faith in him. Put your trust in him. Put your your willingness to follow after him today. Give it all up. For some of you, it's been a long time. For some of you, this may be the first time you've really been willing to release everything. Would you do that today? We practice open communion at one chapel, which means if you love him and want to serve him, we want you to participate with us, okay? Don't feel pressured, but we want you to join with us. Jesus set this table. Father, thank you so much for your grace that we feel in this place, this moment where we're really reflecting on difficult things in our lives. And this is not a simple equation. This is not something that's easily done. But Lord, in this moment, would you come by your spirit and would you raise us? Would you would you speak life into us? We, we, we want to come to this and we want to open up. and We want to relinquish our hold on these ideas and we want to take your eternal life instead. Come and fill us. We thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's worship together as we partake.